0: Hey, listeners, it's Martine. Before we start today's show, I want to mention one more time, Post Reports has been nominated for two Webby Awards. This is a pretty big deal, but we have some very tough competition. So the only way for us to win is if people like you vote for our show. Over the last couple of days, it has been so encouraging to see how votes from Post Reports listeners have really made a difference. We are coming from behind. We are clawing our way to the top. So if you're down to help us, you can find the link to vote in today's show notes and at postreports.com. And if you do vote, please let me know on Twitter or on email so I can thank you so much for your support. Okay, here's the show.
1: So when we started to see these news reports that Russia was retreating from Bucha, which is this suburb near Kiev, we started to see images emerge from the destruction that was left behind.
0: Naomi Nix covers social media companies for The Post, and she remembers seeing a video taken in Bucha from the front seat of a car.
1: And it was just surveying all of the damage. The car was driving up the road bodies, people still wearing their winter coats, were scattered along the road. These images were
0: horrifying, but they're also becoming central to the battle over information and misinformation in Ukraine. Many conspiracy theories have popped up to explain away evidence of war crimes by the Russian military, and it's the job of fact-checkers to monitor this stuff and flag anything that's misleading or flat-out false. Naomi has been talking to a group of independent fact-checkers in Ukraine who've been reviewing videos and photos posted on Facebook, scouring the internet for misinformation and debunking false claims. And this particular video from the car in Bucha was a subject of a conspiracy theory, because in the video,
1: it was raining. You know, I talked to one of the fact-checkers, and she talked about how people on social media were using raindrops as... Evidence that the footage was doctored, even though it clearly looked like raindrops. They were saying, oh, you know, that's just a limb that's moving, so it must be that the bodies are, are actors and they're pretending to be dead.
0: It falls on fact checkers like Valeria Stepaniak to set this straight. She's 22, and she doesn't technically work for Facebook. But she's part of an army of independent fact-checkers whose job it is to comb the platform for harmful misinformation. Many of them are journalists and they're part of an international network coordinated by the journalism nonprofit, the Pointer Institute. They look at government records and reputable press reports, and they use software that can identify if a video has been doctored. So in this case, it was pretty obvious to Valeria that this awful video was in fact real, but she had to prove it.
1: And so what she did is she starts scouring the internet for credible sources. She stumbles on this BBC article, and it shows that satellite imagery of the region essentially disproved Russian claims that the Bucha footage was staged. And it's that kind of work, that kind of traditional tools of journalism that these fact-checkers are using to essentially wage... A battle against misinformation about the war online.
0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 13th. Today, we're hearing more about these fact checkers on the front lines of the information war in Ukraine. And later in the show, we'll talk about the social media landscape in Russia and why Russians on TikTok are seeing an alternate universe.
1: Facebook for several years has had this program in which it essentially pays outside groups. They're usually small media groups to fact-check content on Facebook. And when they find something that's false, Facebook will respond by like demoting the content or even sometimes removing it. And I was just really curious to better understand how does this kind of system of of outsourcing, fact-checking, stand up, during a wartime when things are moving so quickly and when misinformation typically is flooding the social media network at a higher rate. It's actually happening all around the world. More than 100 groups around the world have essentially formed an informal coalition to fact-check content about the war that's appearing on social media in their respective countries. And they have fact-checked more than 1,000 posts, uh, myths about the war. And they're really borrowing the tactics they learned during COVID-19 when it comes to that coordination. And so these fact-checking groups felt like they had moved too slowly to coordinate debunking content online during COVID-19. And now they're essentially trying to make sure that they're not duplicating efforts.
0: I know that Facebook has its own content moderators and people who take down, you know, posts that are considered inappropriate or whatever. So how are these content moderators different from the in-house people? Or why does Facebook outsource this to somebody else rather than just doing the fact-checking themselves?
1: It's a great question. I think this is a good time to mention how misinformation as a policy for Facebook differs than other types of problematic content. Facebook actually doesn't have a wide-scale policy against misinformation. You're allowed to lie on Facebook. In certain categories of misinformation, like health, Uh, or COVID-19, elections, the U.S. census, Facebook does have stricter policies against misinformation. But it's still, you know, obviously there's misinformation about other topics on the platform, and it still gets a lot of criticism for that. But Facebook doesn't want to be in the business of deciding what's true or what's not. They don't want to be, as it's been said, the arbiter of truth. And so these third-party fact-checkers are a way for Facebook to avoid having themselves determine what's true and to rely on these outside groups. And so it's really one of the biggest ways it fights misinformation. Now, it has content moderators and policies against other types of problematic content like hate speech, like harassment, like incitement to violence. And for that kind of content, Facebook has a lot of algorithms that detect it. And also it employs like thousands of moderators to help enforce those policies. But again, those systems are primarily looking at not necessarily widespread misinformation, but content that breaks other types of rules.
0: So what does this fact-checking process look like in Ukraine? And who is doing the fact-checking during this war?
1: Before the war, Facebook only had relationships with two fact-checking organizations in Ukraine, and it actually had none assigned to Russia. And so after the war, you know, started, Facebook kind of had to scramble. And so they started adding fact-checking organizations in nearby regions who would be able to scale up to also tackle content in Ukraine and Russia in the relevant languages. And so how this works is essentially these fact-checking organizations have their own kind of internal dashboard, and they see posts that could potentially be misleading, and they're primarily focused on content that is going viral, that could become very popular, and also, if believed, would have dangerous consequences, And so in Ukraine, you know, they have been tackling all sorts of myths and narratives put out by Russian propaganda. Could could you give some examples of that? So I know I talked to one fact checker who's a student and he sort of talked about, you know, having to debunk this myth that President Zelensky left the country soon after the invasion. That was a sort of myth going around social media. And, you know, he could check it by looking at news reports where President Zelensky was in his office in Kyiv giving interviews with journalists.
2: For example, there was a video of him uh, in uh, his cabinet, and we compared the look of this cabinet to his office in
1: uh, 2019, and is the exact same uh, photo. He also, um, you know, saw videos published by his administration in which, you know, his administration mentioned that there was sort of a viral piece of misinformation going around about himself, that he had actually left the country, and that wasn't true. And so what that fact checker does is he looked at all those sources and he wrote up essentially an article debunking that myth and. You know, then Facebook could in turn demote that particular piece of content and point readers of that content to a link uh, with Mm -hmm. the article explaining why it was wrong.
0: Why is this work so important, especially right now?
1: I mean, social media, right, has become part of how countries wage war these days. Russia had been laying the groundwork for propaganda for years, right? This is nothing new. In fact, fact fact-checking essentially came about as a response to some of Russia's actions in the 2016 presidential election here in the United States, where more groups got concerned about the power of that kind of misinformation. And so this is a way that countries wage war these days, and it's become another way to essentially you know, win the hearts and minds about your respective sides in the conflict. And we're seeing that play out with Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing Russia in particular continue to put out disinformation about what's happening on the ground, about who's really behind the war and about the reasons for it. And there are narratives that support its perspective in, in this conflict in a way that's favorable. And so... You know, these fact checkers feel like if we can tamp down the reach of that content, they can help erode uh, public support for Russia's invasion.
0: Hmm. I'm curious what your conversations were like with some of these fact checkers and how they talked about their jobs and how they see themselves as part of this war effort
1: it was a lot about like, how are they trying to juggle both living during a war and also doing their jobs as fact checkers? And so they talked about, you know, some of them having to flee to safer parts of Ukraine in order to do the job. Both organizations actually had people leave their organization to go fight in the war. And so they talked about like, how do we create contingency plans in you know, as a result of some of those absences. They also talked a lot about kind of how they were personally handling it. Some of them wanted to take a mental health break for a few days after the invasion began. Some of them wanted to get like right into work. You know, some of them talked about how it was hard to see some of the false content being said about the atrocities. And some of them, you know, just talked about kind of how their routine had changed. So I talked to a college student who, you know, talked about, like, his routine. And he he decided to stay in Kyiv and had just developed a new day-to-day. And he would spend his nights in the underground shelter to stay safe. And then during the day, he would go up back up to his dorm room and continue fact-checking or talking with friends. And then there might be a siren warning him there's danger, and he would go back down to the underground shelter.
2: Almost uh, every three or four hours, uh, there are air and sirens uh, in Kyiv, and uh, you need to interrupt your work and think about possible shelter, possible security measures.
1: And I think what really amazed me about their experiences was so many of them said, you know, the human spirit can adapt to anything. Mm. And they talked about how they had gotten used to their life in this sort of new, scary wartime and had developed a way to survive, you know, with their, their sort of mental health relatively intact.
2: That chicken uh, became a little bit more personal than usual because uh, obviously, Russia propaganda is also connected with you because you know people who are under occupation, you know people who are on the front line. uh, And uh, yeah, uh, it's harder to distinguish your personal side and uh, your professional side.
0: I imagine that a lot of what they're doing as part of the fact-checking process must also be like watching video and footage of atrocities all over Ukraine and things that I think, you know, I've really struggled to bring myself to watch once. What has it been like for them of of having to see and process things that are happening in their country as part of their jobs?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think different people have been responding in different ways. And so these fact checkers in general... Facebook gives them a lot of latitude to pick and choose what kind of content they fact check. There's no minimum number of posts or types of posts that they have to tackle. And so what I've heard is that some of them are taking that latitude. And so some are more comfortable looking at the sort of graphic video footage because they think it's really important to debunk some of those myths. You know, it's hard to see, but everyone Can't ignore this. It's important that they know the truth. And that was that kind of refrain that, like, it's important that people know the truth is something that I heard repeatedly.
2: Informational warfare is part of uh, modern war, sure. I think uh, it is uh, as important as uh, conventional war. There is also, like, uh, a feeling of that you are not doing enough that you could not only write in fact-checking, but you uh, could also volunteer or maybe help your soldiers or something else. Mm-hmm. There is like constant feeling for uh, doing more.
0: The process that they have in place in Ukraine right now, do you see that as part of a bigger shift in how social media companies will be navigating these tough questions around how much they should be responsible for ensuring that things on their platform are
1: are truthful, especially in high stakes situations like a war? It's a question that continues to come up, and here's why. It's because social media content, whether it's hate speech, whether it's misinformation, whether it's incitement to violence, um, has real-world consequences. We've seen that in Myanmar. We saw that on January 6. And so Facebook, in particular, has faced a lot of criticism over how that kind of problematic content results in really, really harmful consequences. And so as long as people are continuing to raise questions about that, Facebook and other social media platforms are going to continue to face pressure to ramp up these systems to moderate their platforms. And those are tricky positions for these companies to be in, in part because not everyone has the same definition about what's problematic content or what's misinformation or what's hate speech. And because the the platforms are so big and so sprawling, actually creating scalable systems to tackle that kind of content quickly enough in in an international conflict isn't the easiest thing in the world. And so I think they're going to continue to face pressure to do these things like rely on fact checkers, but also they're going to continue to face questions when content slips through the cracks.
0: Naomi Nix covers social media companies for The Post. Emma Telkoff produced this story. After the break, we turn from the social media landscape within Ukraine to social media in Russia. TikTok has managed to keep operating there, even under the country's new fake news law. And they're doing that by essentially creating a censored version of their platform. What it does
3: suggest is that... The Kremlin and pro-Kremlin propagandists were able to find and share among themselves loopholes for getting around TikTok's block that let them keep on posting as normal while ordinary users, and in particular people who are against the war, no longer could. We'll be right back.
0: The misinformation on Facebook about the war in Ukraine is just part of this story, because in Russia, most people can't access Facebook at all. One of the only major social media apps still widely accessible in Russia is TikTok.
3: Russia on March 4th passed a draconian law criminalizing criticism of its war in Ukraine, which it won't call a war. It calls a special military operation. In response to that law, TikTok said it would suspend uploads of new videos and posts from inside Russia.
0: Will Arimus is a tech writer at The Post. He's been reporting on how major social media companies have handled this new quote-unquote fake news law. Nearly all of them have basically been shut down in Russia, except for TikTok. According to Will's reporting, the way that TikTok has continued to operate is by basically making a censored version of their app just for Russia. That censors posts from regular users, but it has a loophole. And that loophole allows propaganda from Russian state media to slip through.
3: And new research shows that pro-Kremlin propagandists were able to find loopholes in that block so that they could keep posting in favor of the war within Russia, but... The block was successful in limiting anti-war content so that TikTok really inside Russia just became this sort of echo chamber where nobody was against the invasion. Will spoke to my
0: colleague Alaahe Izadi about how information about the war has played out on TikTok.
3: So prior to March 6th, TikTok in Russia was a vibrant, dynamic place, just like everywhere else in the world, and At that time, because it was two weeks into the war in Ukraine, it was full of content about Ukraine. Ukrainians were posting videos of missiles hitting buildings. They were posting videos of the rubble and the aftermath. They were sharing their stories of having to flee their homes.
0: Russian soldiers ca- come in house of my friends and decided to get shower, eat there, and it's crazy. When you can get outside, you, you can hear how uh, bombs can destroy something, uh, and you never know where you can see it up
3: of your head. Starting on March 6th, when TikTok blocked uploads from Russia and blocked Russians from seeing outside content, it became a very different place for Russians. No longer did they see any of the news from Ukraine. They still saw some content from Russian influencers and creators, entertainers, musicians. Some ordinary Russian users were finding their way around the block against uploads using various techniques like VPNs and that sort of thing. They also saw propaganda from the regime and from some influencers who were apparently paid to post pro-war propaganda on the platform. So it became a quieter place, but a place where what political content was left was almost all in favor of the war. And then it changed one more time. On March 26th, this research group that I worked with called Tracking Exposed, based in Europe, which has been monitoring TikTok, found that no new content was getting through in Russia at all anymore. So the loopholes had closed. And now if you open TikTok in Russia, it's what one user in Russia described to me as a ghost town. Everything is old. There's basically nothing from after March 26th.
4: Yeah, and you mentioned this, this fake news law, quote-unquote fake news law in Russia. How different is what TikTok is doing to deal with that law compared to the other big social media companies?
3: So when you talk to experts on social media companies' content policies, their trust and safety policies, we could really call it a foreign policy at this point. I mean, social media companies need to deal with geopolitical events like this. They'll tell you that often there are no easy answers. If you comply with an authoritarian regime that's asking you to censor this or that, you are potentially violating the human rights of your users. You're not standing up for them. On the other hand, if you don't comply, there are risks there too. You could be booted out of the country. In some countries, including Russia, there are what's called hostage laws or hostage taking laws where they require companies doing business in Russia to have employees based in Russia. And The cynical reason for that is so that they have somebody to arrest to put leverage on the company when the company doesn't do what the regime wants. Now, Facebook and Google and Twitter have been dealing with this for a long time. It's newer to TikTok. TikTok was originally mostly an entertainment app. Only more recently has it become a force in politics and political discourse and news and information. What TikTok did basically was censor its platform in Russia to avoid running afoul of Vladimir Putin's regime what the other major companies did, Twitter, Facebook, Google, was refuse to censor and take the consequences. And For Facebook, that has meant being labeled an extremist organization by the Russian government and kicked out of the country altogether. For Twitter, it has meant having its service essentially blocked for everybody in Russia by the regime. Google is still battling over whether YouTube can stay there, but the expectation is it will eventually be banned as well once Russia feels comfortable that it has a homegrown alternative. TikTok is the one that has stayed uh, in the good graces of Putin and the regime. And again, it has done it by voluntarily censoring pretty much everything that could possibly upset them.
4: And what has TikTok said about what it's doing in Russia and about what you reported this morning?
3: TikTok has always been pretty careful in its public statements. One of the things that concerns some of the experts I talked to is that when it announced its block on March 6th, it only announced that it was blocking video uploads and new posts from inside Russia. It didn't say anything about the fact that it was blocking Russians from seeing content from the rest of the world. You know, the company has admitted that to journalists over the weeks. They did admit that to me They said that this is about protecting the safety of their users and employees. So that goes back to the idea that with Russia having criminalized what it calls fake news about the war, basically any kind of dissent, TikTok's employees who are in Russia could be at risk of getting arrested if TikTok runs afoul of the regime there. So from TikTok's perspective, it's just trying to keep everybody safe until this emergency, this crisis uh, blows over or until they figure out a longer term solution.
4: Does it seem like to you, TikTok has really become, out of all the social media companies, the the focal point in this war? Like, people have called the war in Ukraine the first TikTok war. Why is that? And and, and is this also why you're paying such close attention to TikTok?
3: Certainly all the social media platforms are playing a role in what the world learns about what's going on in Ukraine. Ukrainians post to Instagram, to Facebook, to Telegram, to TikTok, but... This war in particular came at a time when TikTok is ascendant as a source of information and entertainment for people around the world, and TikTok seemed to lend itself to reports from ordinary Ukrainians about what they were experiencing. It's a very intimate platform. When you see a video from somebody... You feel connected to them. You feel like they're talking directly to you. And there's an emotional resonance there. So when tanks were amassing at the Ukrainian border, TikTok was one of the first places that the world found out about it. When missiles began hitting Ukrainian buildings, those videos were captured first on TikTok. It has become a pretty critical conduit for information about what's going on in Ukraine at a time when it's hard for the traditional media sometimes to report from there or certainly from places where the traditional media has a hard time getting.
4: And so now for people in Russia, ordinary Russians, if they were to open up TikTok, and and as you mentioned, it, it almost resembles sort of like this ghost town full of content that slants and leans pro-war that might be propaganda What kind of information environment does that create for Russians trying to understand what's going on in the world?
3: I think it dovetails very nicely with what the Russian government is trying to do, which is essentially, in a short time, block out all outside and independent sources of information that could challenge its official narratives about the war. Russia, in just a couple months, has gone from being a place where there were lots of independent information sources, lots of dissent, to a place that looks a lot more like China, where the government has tight control over what can be said and who can say it. I mean, part of what TikTok does is create this sense of connection with the people creating the videos that you're seeing. You really can feel like there's an authenticity there that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a state media broadcast I think there probably is some risk that people look at their TikTok for you page in Russia and think, well, this really is what people think. You know, nobody around me is, is against the war. Now, one big caveat to that is that a lot of more highly educated, young, tech-savvy Russians know how to use VPNs, virtual private networks, to get around restrictions on outside media, on outside social networks. So they can access Facebook and Instagram in this way still. Um, they are learning things that run completely contrary to all the official information in the country. And some reporting by my colleagues suggests that they're trying to go back to their relatives, you know, their friends, their older relatives, other people in the country who are accepting the the state propaganda and say, "Look, this is not the truth." You know, there's there's a whole different reality out there about what's going on in Ukraine and you're not hearing any of it. And you know, to be honest, they probably sound like cranks, right? Like they sound like wild-eyed conspiracy theorists, the people who are watching their their normal state TV broadcasts and getting a completely different picture. It's actually apparently leading to, you know, arguments with Within families. I mean, people getting mad at each other because they now have these entirely different worldviews based on whether they can get information from outside or not.
4: Do you think TikTok will face any backlash or repercussions in the United States and Europe for how it's operating in Russia?
3: There really is no global rule book for how these social media companies should behave around the world. Again and again, they face these questions of do they follow the local laws? Do they stand up for principles, human rights, free speech? Those things are often in tension, and I don't think anybody has resolved exactly when and where they should make what calls. I do think that TikTok probably should face more scrutiny than it has for the way that it has seemingly so easily rolled over in Russia. Then again, if you look at Facebook and Twitter, It's not like they're bringing outside information to Russians because they've been kicked out. So there was no good answer there. And I think that TikTok chose a path that probably deserves criticism, but I don't think that they'll necessarily face any formal repercussions simply because there are no laws here. These are companies operating above and beyond the laws of any single nation for the most part. Now, the caveat to that is that different countries may look at what tiktok is doing in russia and take lessons from that so if you're uh, an authoritarian regime in a different country you're looking at what tiktok did in russia and thinking hey they'll censor pretty easily if we just put the right pressure on them maybe we can get them to do that here if you are a democracy in europe that is really upset about what's going on in Ukraine, you might look at what TikTok is doing in Russia and think, wow, this really shows that they will bend over backwards for authoritarians. Maybe we should think twice about whether TikTok should even be allowed in our country.
4: Thanks so much for your time, Will.
3: Thank you.
0: Will Oremus is a tech writer for The Post. He spoke to my colleague, Alahe Izadi, who will be back in the host chair tomorrow on Post Reports. This story was produced by Jordan Murray-Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. And just a reminder, Webby Awards. If you have not voted for us yet, we need you. Find the link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.